0: There's often this idea of the romantic mystique. Love is a mystical feeling, like magic, like a mystery that we can never truly understand. In fact, that mystery is what makes romantic love so mesmerizing. If we overanalyze love, if we question it too much, it will lose its magic. In the survey I posted about love, I asked what made relationships romantic, to which many answered, It just felt romantic. Not sure how else to explain it. It just feels more special than being with other people you're close with. I really can't describe it, other than you just feel at peace and happy for what the future holds. Unlike objects, physics, illness, pretty much everything else in the natural world, it seems like we can't really explain love, and maybe we don't want to. But is that the right approach?
1: When I was first studying romantic love, I wrote an academic paper. One of the peer reviewers wrote, oh, but you can't study this. It's part of the supernatural. And I thought to myself, you know, I mean, anger is not part of the supernatural. Uh, Fear is not part of the supernatural. Joy is not part of the supernatural. Why would this be part of the supernatural? So
0: I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Helen Fisher, who is a famous biological anthropologist known for her work about love. You may have seen her on this video from Wired, where she answers love questions from Twitter or her TED Talks about love as an addiction. She thinks love can and should be studied.
1: Even though I know an awful lot of it, it's never spoiled the feeling. It's a little bit like when you eat a piece of chocolate cake. You know every single ingredient in the piece of chocolate cake, but um, you still feel that joy of eating it. And so even with everything I know about romantic love and attachment and the sex drive, all three of the basic brain systems for love, I still get the incredible rush just the way everybody else does.
0: I agree that we should seek to understand such a powerful force. Many people make their most significant life choices based on love. Should I buy a house with this person? Should I raise a child with them? Should I trust them with my deepest insecurities? As Carrie Jenkins writes in her book What Love Is and What It Could Be, love is an extreme sport and we don't skydive without parachutes. Now, Dr. Fisher aims to explain love through biology, through brain systems and evolution, but that's not the only way people have tried to study love. Social constructionist theories argue that romantic love is a product of society and culture, but it isn't universal or necessary. People no doubt feel those warm, fuzzy feelings caused by chemical reactions in the brain. There's no denying those biological reactions, but that's not what romantic love really is. For example, are tomatoes fruits or vegetables? The biological answer is that tomatoes are fruits. Like all fruits, they grow from the flower of a plant and they contain seeds. But many people, including me, think that's a stupid ass answer. (laughs) Tomato is clearly a vegetable because I use it exactly like a vegetable. I cook tomatoes in a pan, I mix it into sauces for pasta, I sprinkle all sorts of savory spices onto it. I don't bring it to work and munch on it like an apple. I don't put it into my oatmeal or yogurt bowls. I wouldn't dream of putting soy sauce on my fruit. Yet, notice how others would disagree with me. Many Chinese people, like my mom, do in fact eat a tomato like an apple, and sometimes she'll sprinkle a little bit of sugar on top. Some people do put tomatoes in their fruit salad. There's even tomato sorbet? I mean, couldn't be me, but okay? The point is, when I passionately defend tomatoes as vegetables, what fruit and vegetable track are not biological classifications of a plant, but their social function in our diets and recipes, dependent on our cultural environment. You can think about social constructionist theories of love in the same way. When we say people are romantically in love, social constructionists think we are referring to a type of love, which takes on a distinctive social function, one that separates it from other types of love like family or platonic love. Right now in North America, we consider people to be properly in love if they form a monogamous, lifelong bond. A couple may love each other for 20 years, but if they fall out of love and separate on the 21st year, we call this failed love, which implies that truly successful love will remain for the rest of one's life. If someone says they have more than one lover, societies, at least in the West, will say that they are confused, that surely they must love one person more. Love triangles only serve as dramatic plot points or character arcs, where they eventually realize that one person was the soulmate all along. Now, Dr. Fisher would agree that lifelong monogamous romantic love is a social function. It's useful for keeping families together. But it's inevitable that people will break up or divorce because of our biological drive to reproduce.
1: Divorce rates are not going up. But they're high. I mean, it's you know, divorce will probably always be with us. For good Darwinian reasons, too. I mean, you know, when you have a children by more than one partner, you've created more genetic variety in your lineage. And it's entirely possible that we evolved the predisposition to get restless in long partnerships simply so that we would move on to another partner. However, she says monogamy
0: itself is not a social function. This is natural. She says it's wired into our brains through evolution.
1: We're really not built to share. We are built for pair-binding. There are people, I mean, the polyamory community would say, I have made a deal with my partner to sleep around or have romances and everybody agrees and, and they do it. What they don't tell you is how much they talk about it because they've got to overcome the jealousy to do what they want to do. So, I mean, along with the evolution of pair bonding, which probably started about four million years ago, women began to have to carry their baby in their arms instead of on their back. They began to need a partner to help uh, protect and provide for them. I don't see how a man could have provided for several females. And we evolved this brain circuitry for attachment.
0: With monogamy as our norm, it's pretty easy to accept it as the natural way of loving. But Dr. Jenkins challenges this idea. As someone in a long-term polyamorous relationship, wishes to have more than one partner, she provides many thought-provoking arguments about love, one being that romantic love is both biological and socially constructed. When I notice my heart beating faster at the thought of a loved one or feel the rush of adrenaline when we are together after an absence, I am drawn to the biological view. There's nothing socially constructed about this love that I'm experiencing. This is a natural phenomenon. Then again, when I get frustrated with the social norm of universal monogamy and hearing about how being in two relationships means I'm not really in love, it seems obvious that romantic love is what we, collectively, socially, make of it. I think often the natural sciences and humanities are posed as competitors. But for Dr. Jenkins, there's nothing contradictory about saying that love is natural and also socially constructed. In fact, we need both biology and sociocultural philosophy. They cannot stand alone. Love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. This is not a biology channel. The last time I studied biology was probably two years ago. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend like I know science. But conveniently, Dr. Jenkins discusses a lot of Dr. Fisher's work. So I'll let Dr. Fisher take the
1: floor. We've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction sex drive being one, feelings of intense romantic love being the second, and feelings of deep attachment being the third. Romantic love has a very specific brain system. It comes from a tiny little near the very base of the brain that pumps out the dopamine and that gives you that uh, bodily responses of weak knees butterflies in the stomach uh, sexual craving it's a whole suite of traits that are associated with feelings of romantic love and they're driven by the dopamine system in the brain you start reading the poetry from China from India Japan I mean everywhere in the world it's a basic human drive is what it really is it's a drive it comes from the oldest parts of the brain and drives you to form a partnership and send your DNA into tomorrow, so. As
0: neuroscience develops, it becomes more and more possible to create a biological theory of love with genuine plausibility. And it's undoubtedly appealing. Such a powerful experience as love can be scary. It can cloud our judgment, break our hearts. It can feel comforting to know that at the end of the day, this intense magical feeling we call love can be understood by studying hormones and
1: MRI brain scans. People live for love, they kill for love, they die for love, they pine for love, and it's going to continue forever, I mean.
0: But Dr. Jenkins warns against relying solely on biology. It is one thing to say that certain areas of the brain become more active when in love. It's a totally different thing to say that the essence of romantic love is that brain activity. For example, all humans, by virtue of being human, have a certain genetic makeup. We have eyes and skin and height, but those all differ from person to person, even though that biological base is the same. And so why can't love differ between people even if we have a shared evolutionary background? Did we all evolve to be monogamous and heterosexual to send our genes into the future, like Dr. Fisher says? Do we all experience love as an obsessive passion? Clearly not. What about longtime friends who slowly realize feelings for each other and have a stable, calm relationship throughout? Fisher would call that purely attachment, which is platonic. But I think it can be romantic. And all of y'all who read Slow Burn Friends to Lovers, 1500,000 words, probably feel the same way. And queer people exist. So, to be fair, Dr. Fisher does acknowledge cultural effects on love
1: the environment very definitely tells you how to act. In traditional China, they were terrified of romantic love because it could topple all the family relations. I mean, now that's socially constructed. In America, we seem to be very interested in love at first sight, although I think that's declining a little. Kissing in public was forbidden in in Japan for a long period of time, whereas you know we, we do a lot of kissing in public in our society. Different cultures are gonna define how you court, but the actual feeling is not socially constructed. It's a basic brain system.
0: But ultimately for her, these are differences on how love is expressed. Love itself still only has one standard model. Dopamine and oxytocin, plus a sex drive from evolution, geared towards heterosexual reproduction. People who love differently are treated as deviations from this norm of the human species. In her book, Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love, she says queer folk while in the womb or during childhood developed, quote, a different focus for their passion. To her, it is the queer individual who strays from the normal path of love. Nothing wrong with going off-road, it's just not what normal people do. When I asked Dr. Fisher, what about asexual people? They don't have sex drives. She said they probably have an unusual division of brain systems.
1: I don't think it occurs very often because as you drive up the dopamine system, which is linked with feelings of intense romantic love, that triggers testosterone and can really turn you on sexually. So, And somehow these people have those two systems disconnected in some way. My guess is that an awful lot of these people will eventually discover sex, but I don't know.
0: But what about alternative theories of evolution, where humans evolved for a variety of cooperative activities, not just reproduction? What about the theory that a baby sling was invented to carry children, rather than Fisher's theory of women being forced to rely on a man? Isn't developing a simple tool like a baby sling more efficient for survival than developing a whole new biological drive? Quote, if we didn't set out by assuming that love was originally all about male-female reproductive coupling, then we wouldn't later need to backtrack to try to accommodate queer love as some kind of deviation. Again, do not rely on this channel for biology. I am not very educated on this. But if you're interested in learning more, you can read up on Dr. Fisher's work or Dr. Jenkins or other evolutionary theories about love. Even if we've got many problems with Dr. Fisher's theory, I can't deny that she paved the way for studying love and started a lot of conversation. The main point is just that it's super important to analyze whether something is actually biological or just a cultural familiarity. Not too long ago, people said it was unnatural to love someone of the same sex or a different race. We are still battling tons and tons of unfounded biological claims about gender. I don't know if it's just my for you page, but I've been seeing more biological determinism, which is a theory that says our actions are determined solely by our biology. I see claims like
2: Men are hunters, and it is in a man's nature to cheat. Most couples fall in love temporarily because love evolved primarily to get humans to get together, reproduce, and raise children, which is a temporary quest.
0: Wanna know what happens in the male brain when a guy is in love? Sometimes I worry that constantly consuming content about cishet men being lazy around the house, having poor emotional intelligence, and thirsting over other women when their partner is right next to them creates a depressing feeling that men are just like that, and they will never change. I occasionally feel that way too after too much scrolling, and it fills me with anger, frustration, and despair. How will I ever successfully love if men are always like this? If women in hetero relationships will always be better at love? But that's the exact danger of relying solely on biology. It naturalizes romance and love as a womanly trait. Think of how many girls in movies and TV shows have their big goal being to end up with a love interest. How many romance movies are called chick flicks? In the US, there have been tons of cases where juries have reduced murder charges to manslaughter because he killed his wife or his girlfriend out of quote, extreme mental or emotional disturbance. The reason? Either she broke up with him or didn't love him anymore or even just danced with another guy. But oh, poor men, they can't help that they're just naturally jealous and rageful when in love. Men, haunts haunt us. We must continue to question biological theories that make every accepted social norm natural and seriously threaten people's safety. Quote, Familiarity makes it so easy to mistake culture for nature.
3: Yeah, good. well, thanks for coming. Yeah, of course. Is that a normal
1: thing to say?
0: I so, guess it th- is, thanks, totally yeah. Before I start this section, I want to remind that saying something is socially constructed does not mean it's fake. Laws, political parties, birthdays, national borders, these are all social constructs. But no one would say they're fictional, the way true happiness is fictional, the way vampires are fictional. They may not refer to a physical object that I can see or touch, but they do represent something real. In Biel and Sternberg's paper, The Social Construction of Love, they argue that romantic love is socially constructed based on the function it's supposed to serve in a specific time and place. It's not just the expressions of love that are different. Of course, certain romantic gestures are more popular in one culture than another. But Biel and Sternberg say that the experience of love itself varies culturally. Quote, Consider a woman falling in love in Victorian England. The idea is that she will literally go through a different process compared to a woman falling in love in contemporary Canada. For the Victorian lady, falling in love is a matter of developing a deep and respectful but probably rather distant admiration for a man. Sexual desire is at best irrelevant to this process, at worst a shameful distraction. For the contemporary Canadian, however, falling in love is a matter of developing an intimate attachment that normatively includes sexual desire. If sexual desire is absent, that is at best noticeably unusual. At worst, it's interpreted as showing that the feelings involved are not romantic, but platonic. And it's not genetics or evolution that causes this difference between Victorian women and contemporary Canadian women, it's their culture and time period. During the Enlightenment era, rationality was everything, and so proper love was seen as rational. Then during the Romantic era, emotions became a priority, and so love was seen as a wild roller coaster of emotions. If you grew up in the past few decades, you've probably heard of this rhyme before Joe and Joey sitting in a tree. K I S S I N G. First comes love. Then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. If you couldn't tell, I sang that a lot before. (laughs) Quote, This rhyme teaches children what love is by teaching them what love does. It ingrains in their minds the idea of romantic love as occupying a place between physical affection on the one hand and marriage plus reproduction on the other. So from a social perspective, romantic love is what its function does. It also presents love as something that involves two people, there are only spaces for two names in the rhyme, and is typically hetero, usually one girl's name and one boy's name are used. Social constructionists say that rhymes like this, or the thousands of cheesy romance films that exist, or the millions of love songs out there, they aren't romantic love as though it's some pre-existing experience floating in the sky. Society and culture literally make romantic love. Unsurprisingly, social constructionist theories of love are much more appealing to the aromantic community. If they cannot feel romantic love, then it doesn't make sense to call love a universal biological phenomenon.
4: Because before I knew that I was aromantic, I thought it meant when you think someone is like really cool and you want to get to know them better. But that turned out to not be the case. That's just like admiration.
2: You know, when it comes to dating, a lot of people they feel very lonely and they feel this intense desire to be near someone. And in many cases, anyone. So for me, I didn't really feel that. Like I really like being alone. It's pretty awesome. I guess it'd be like asking a person who has always been blind about the conception of sight, I guess. I'm not really sure what that's like, really, but
3: I know that it exists. It's almost like people are hearing something that I don't hear. So I've tried to fake it in so many relationships over the years. As I mentioned, I have kids, so I've obviously managed to fake it enough to do that. This thing called romantic love seems to me a lot like a construct of media. You know, there's this idea of a special person or a special thing and a feeling that's supposed to happen. And I find it to be just kind of a confusing concept that I don't really understand. And if it's real, then it's real to other people, but it's not real to me. I don't, I don't experience it in that way.
2: I'm like, what's considered like a gray aromantic. So like, you know, when I was younger, like I actually did feel romantic love, but as I got older, it just became a little less intent and way, 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 way less frequent for me.
4: Because like, I figured this out because of my ex-boyfriend from a while back, because he would be saying all these weird things to me, like, oh, my heart aches for you. And I'm like, what? It's just like really weird and alien to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? And like, I was realizing then, huh, that's supposed to be normal. I've never felt anything like that before.
3: I always see couples, you know, old couples, particularly walking around together. And I'm always amazed. Like, how does that happen for people? I, I envy them. I really do. You know, the one I'm having kids with, you know, that I, boy, we fought to make that work for like almost 10 years you know, but ultimately couldn't.
2: (laughs) I'm fairly certain I can in the future, just, you know, it's been like five years and I've gone like a a stint of seven years without feeling that.
0: Society does an amazing job of erasing aromanticism from our consciousness. This is what Elizabeth Brake calls amatonormativity, the assumption that everyone is better off in a romantic relationship and everyone is longing for one. Now, Tara Mookney has already done a whole video on this, so I won't go into it. But I think it's always valuable to add more aro's voices to the discussion, since they're so commonly left out, and hear about how they understand romantic love.
4: For a while it was really confusing to me since I'm not asexual, because you know when you have sexual feelings for someone and then you have really really strong platonic feelings for them and you admire them or you have aesthetic attraction to them, it can be really hard to tell because you have all the ingredients except for the romantic love part.
3: I wanted kids since I could remember. I always knew I wanted to be a dad. It's just, you know, the whole being in a romantic relationship part was always difficult for me. I had this one girlfriend who I remember, like, when we would kiss at times. It was like she would close her eyes and go to a different place. And I'm like, I'm not there.
4: Like my whole life, people were like, oh, you'll find someone, yada, 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 yada. And I'm like, mm, is that really true? And then it never really happened. And then I realized I never even had a crush in the first place. So it's like... Oh, and constantly being gaslit like that is not good for you because it causes all this kind of stress all the time. You're like, what, what's wrong with me? Why hasn't it happened yet? And like you think something's wrong with you.
2: And I, I think, you know, our, our culture sort of has this idea of just overwrought perfection for the ideal of romantic love. And it's, it's unrealistic. And I think it's setting up a lot of people to be unhappy because they're expecting the world from another human being. and No one can provide the world.
0: I wonder what biology theorists like Dr. Fisher would have to say about the aromantic community, which I stupidly forgot to ask her about. But at the very least, her claim that love is
1: It's a basic human drive, is what it really is. It's a drive. It comes from the oldest parts of the brain.
0: Is not entirely true. And when I asked her what the difference is between familial and romantic love, she said minimal dopamine and sex.
1: I think familial love is a form of attachment. With your family, you don't cry if your mother doesn't call you. You don't want to sleep with your brother.
0: But asexual people don't want to sleep with their romantic partners. And the popularity of incest on Hornsights kinda begs to differ. But social constructionist theories are not perfect either. While it's crucial to recognize that aspects of romantic love are socially constructed, we cannot change literally anything we want. For example, when we get broken up with, wouldn't it be nice to just not feel like shit for weeks? If we could push for social change where people recognize that other types of love are equally important, and there's more to life than romance, and there's plenty of other wonderful people out there, you're gonna feel like shit. If you really romantically love someone, there's no escaping the chemical changes in your brain that bond you to another person. And there's no escaping the biological confusion your brain goes through when they leave. We also can't create a social function of romantic love in order to force the Eros community into participating. No matter what we change socially, they just can't feel the biological calls of love
3: kissing, touching, all those displays of affection for me are, they're either sexualized or they're comforting. And it's not that I minded doing those things with my partners, it's just there's this kind of performative element, particularly in public, that to me was always bizarre. I would do it because I knew it was expected of me, but it it never felt natural or comfortable.
4: All the crushes I had in the past were either like aesthetic attraction, sexual attraction or just really close platonic friends. And when I was younger, I even had a period where I would start to like kind of obsess over whoever I thought I was crushing on because that's what the girls in books and movies did. And I was like, they're doing that. That must be what's normal. I should be doing that too. And then it led into this like behavior of like obsessing over people. At
0: the end of the day, we are creatures with limits. We need to understand biology in order to understand what changes are actually possible and what changes are the most efficient. Uh, okay, I'll go first. I'm lonely. Dr. Jenkins has a fun little chapter titled Aliens vs. 19th Century Lesbians. In it, she proposes a thought experiment. Suppose there's an alien society on another planet that operates just like your society. They have alien rom-coms, alien genders, alien weddings, lifelong monogamy as a cultural norm. But suppose the biological machinery that makes up these aliens is completely different from ours. Instead of dopamine and oxytocin, the aliens might have no chemicals in their brains at all. Perhaps their heads are filled with a system of levers and pulleys. Or perhaps they don't even have heads. Can these aliens experience romantic love? At a biological level, the answer is no. The brain chemistry is just not there. Quote, maybe they fall in something that looks like love, but to say they literally fall in love would be a bit like saying they have heart attacks just because they sometimes fall down clutching the places where their hearts would be if they had hearts, which they don't. However, at a social level, yes, they do love each other. The aliens think about meeting the one, they care deeply for their partner, they get married and remain faithful for the rest of their lives. So no biologically, but yes, socially. Can it be the other way around?
4: So you said this was your best friend? That's correct. Whom you share emotionally intense letters with? Yes, we exchange them monthly. Well, when you look at her, the brain scans show that you're producing lots of dopamine, and, funnily, the areas of the brain that are associated with romantic love become very active.
0: I see. Well, I wish I had as tight of a friendship as you two. How's your husband, by the way? The biological reactions of love have stayed the same. 19th century lesbians experience the biological states we would call love. Lesbians today experience biological states we would call love. But because of heteronormativity, they were barred from the social role of love. They could not marry, they could not live as a family, they could not express affection beyond totally platonic caresses. Many queer folk back then couldn't even understand their queerness because of limited terminology besides slurs. This is called hermeneutical injustice, when people literally cannot conceptualize their identity or experience because they don't have the language for it. When women who love other women are called words that I do not want to say, they do not experience their attraction to women as love. They saw it as gross and undesirable and sometimes an illness.
1: Where'd you like to kiss like
0: that? I don't know where that came from. Dr. Jenkins describes the hermeneutical injustice she faced as someone in a polyamorous relationship. Quote, Lacking a word like polyamorous, a polyamorous person can be left reaching for words that encode a negative judgment, such as unfaithful, or suggest a crime or sin, such as adulterous. Only being able to describe your intimate feelings by passing negative judgment on yourself has psychological consequences. Okay, so, there is sometimes biological but not social love, like 19th century lesbians. And sometimes there's social but not biological love, like aliens. Isn't that a contradiction? Can't there only be one? Dr. Jenkins says no. There's nothing wrong with recognizing both as separate and simultaneous. It's like watching a movie and saying, That's Daniel Craig. That's also Benoit Blanc. And you're right, both times. Daniel Craig is playing a specific role, and in playing that role, he is shaping Benoit Blanc to be the character he is. He can also play James Bond, or, uh, this character. I didn't watch the movie, I don't know how to say it. The role Daniel Craig fills constructs a different character each time. Similarly, the biology of love has taken on different social roles throughout history, each time constructing a different role of love. When Benoit Blanc says there's a hole inside a donut, donut a which is inside another hole, hole in a donut, in which is inside is a donut, inside a donut, a donut, donut which, hole. Is, which is inside a, hole a, donut. In a donut. We know that that line belongs to a script for Benoit Blanc, the character, but it uses the mouth of Daniel Craig to say it. And so, how do we, as biological actors, contribute to the social script of love? How do we change the social script to be less oppressive and more inclusive? There are likely people who worry that changing the social role of romantic love too much or too fast would make love unrecognizable. But that's why Dr. Jenkins recommends that change be gradual and happen against a background of continuity. For example, the game of football has changed over time but we still recognize it as football because rule changes have been gradual and only a few features changed at a time. We often see this careful strategy for change employed by marginalized groups of love. A lot of work to promote acceptance of same-sex love has often focused on emphasizing other accepted romantic norms. It's like a trade-off. If you accept us, who you consider strange, then we'll agree with your other norms. Monogamy is one of those traded norms. That's why so much of the focus on same-sex love was around marriage. If the social function of romantic love is to create monogamous nuclear families, wouldn't it work better if we also let queer folk pair up? Romantic love is so strongly associated with monogamous marriage that when the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in 2015, they said, No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. The trending phrases online were love wins and love is love. But queer theorists have pointed out that marriage is a heterosexual norm handed to queer communities, assuming that they would want their love to fulfill the exact same social role. It's much easier to have a heteronormative, largely monogamous society accept same-sex relationships if they fight for marriage and promise to be good little nuclear families. It's a lot harder to demand the right to have more than one partner or to not be romantically in love at all. I want to end this video by touching on the common politicization of love. Liberals are associated with progressive sex and conservatives are associated with traditional love. Thus, when people challenge romantic love, the reaction from conservatives is, you want a lawless, orgy-filled world? What happened to decent, true love? Clearly, this doesn't get us anywhere. And besides, it's just stupid. (laughs) Politicizing love politicizes the people in love. As if anyone who doesn't dream of a monogamous, opposite-sex soulmate is a pawn of progressivism. But love cannot be restricted or defined by political beliefs. Love is fluid. At its basis, love takes attraction and affection and molds it into a significant bond. But whether you want it to include sex, kids, Love songs, a shared home, monogamy, those are what Dr. Jenkins calls optional add-ons. It's okay if you want love songs now and then don't want them later on. It's okay if you want to have sex sometimes more than others. Recognizing romantic love as having a dual nature, we can change romantic love at the social level for the better while being empathetic of our biological limits. Maybe with change, the social function of romantic love won't be as clear cut anymore. But it's always been changing anyways. People can now love without kids, people can love someone of a different race, people can divorce and love someone new. These all were once excluded from the social role of love. If you're confused about anything I've said in this video, I highly suggest reading Carrie Jenkins' book yourself. She explains everything so clearly, much better than I ever could, and there are tons of things she talks about that I didn't include in this video. I saw some people have problems with Jenkins' claims about metaphysics though, so if you have thoughts on that, I'd be interested to hear about it. Thank you a ton to Dr. Helen Fisher for agreeing to let me interview her, this random girl on the internet that she literally has never heard of. And thank you to all of the Eros people who shared their stories with me. It means a lot. Of course, shout out to all my Patreons for supporting this channel. Let's pull that spreadsheet up. Sutani, Brandon Puntos, To Work For Me, Ben MacLeod, Sammy, Jowgum Calves, Rager005, Caleb, Chasin Eos, Blueberry Hill, Brian C., Paige Selby, Jasmine, Audrey Coomer, Jackie V., Depressed Laughter, Matthew Condy, Flawlessness.com AU, Ox Pecker, Matt Roselake, Love and Angels 420, Zoe Allred, JL underscore Arbor 21, Kaden and Olivia, Daniel Dangond, John Nguyen, Steven Bollinger, Bonzo, Vincent Julian Valdez, Benson Lai, Zesty Sauce, Solomon Khan, Jacob McMillan, Solodocitania, Lorenzo Villegas, Jeannie Lee, GEW, LEE, Jonathan Von Schroeder, Murky Morals, OHB, Sabrina Fiore, Drew Singal, Sneezy Weezy, Liraz Levy, Robert Castro, Kian Nahad, Josh Hunt, C Dub, Laura Clark, Spaceman No Helmet, Deep Do Chatterjee, MJ, and Jesse. Thank you so much for watching. Let's keep talking, and I hope to hear from you soon. Bye!